0: we thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552.
1: Hello, this is Leslie Gess, the producer of The Gist of Freedom, and I'm so happy to be your host tonight with a great guest. His name is Mr. David Fisk. Mr. Fisk, are you on the line?
0: Yes, I am. Okay.
1: Great. So we're going to talk about um, Solomon Northup. You're an author. And before I screw up your introduction, would you be so kind and introduce yourself?
0: Okay. Uh, Well, my name is David Fisk, and uh, I live uh, in the next town from Saratoga Springs where Solomon Northup was kidnapped from. So over the years, I've had an interest in his story. And I've researched a lot of the local elements and found out a lot about what he did afterwards and also about what his uh, wife and his his family did. And we just put out a book that I worked on with some other people last year. that was called uh, Solomon Northup, uh, the complete story of the author of 12 Years a Slave that really includes as much as we could possibly find out about his early life and about how he survived the ordeal of being kidnapped and being a slave, and how he lived his life afterwards up to a point. And then at some point, uh, we lose track of him. We don't know exactly uh, what happened to him at the exact end of his life, but we know he did go around and speak at anti-slavery groups and, uh, and worked on the Underground Railroad and things like that. So he did do quite a bit after he came back.
1: All right. Before we get into Solomon, let's talk about the event that you're going to be um, making a presentation. Okay. Uh, this week, uh, next weekend.
0: Uh, yes, next uh, Saturday on May 10th in Schenectady, New York, New York uh, at the uh, Schenectady County Historical Society, I'll be giving a talk about uh, Solomon Northup's wife in Northup and uh, what she, uh, especially about what she did while he was away and how she kept the family going and the different uh, uh, jobs and occupations that she she carried on. So because she really, you know, when he left, she lost a lot of, the family lost a lot of income, so she had to Mm -hmm. keep things going on her own, which I'm sure was no easy task, so.
1: Okay, could you give us a little tease about, and we don't want to give it away? You want people okay. to come out and but right. uh, just tell us a little bit about who she is and what you okay. know what she did
0: well, of course, uh you know her husband was gone for about twelve years, so by necessity, she became you know i think a very independent woman. She had her own career as a cook um apparently she met a wealthy woman named. Madame Jamel in Saratoga, and she went down uh, for a year or two, and worked for Madame Jamel as her cook and so forth at her mansion in New York City. Uh, Madame Jamel was had married some wealthy people, including uh, the former Vice President uh, Aaron Burr, and she had a, a wait, nice. Wait, wait, uh, wait! You
1: can't mention Aaron without uh, explaining who he is. I'm from Patterson, New Jersey. Okay, and um, that should be enough. For you to take over with the story from that okay. little snippet of information. Who's Aaron Burr?
0: Well, he he was vice president of the United States, um, and he of course is the one that had the famous uh, uh, duel, duel? where that Alexander Hamilton, in which Hamilton was killed, uh, and uh, so there was something there was a certain, some bitterness towards Aaron Burr. And some people weren't too crazy about him, and he, he kind of suffered a lot through his reputation. But he, he married uh, Eliza Jumel, um, and probably partly... Well, they probably liked each other, but he also realized that she had some money, and it would help him out financially if he if he got hooked up with her. Uh, but now, they didn't really the get along she, too well.
1: Weren't the law laws uh, at that time... Didn't they say she couldn't, women, period, couldn't own any property? Or how did they um, change by that time?
0: I, um, yeah, I'm well, not sure. Uh, she, on yeah, she, yeah. She, I, I think she inherited it when her hu- first husband had died, so maybe that was mm-hmm. a little bit different. But uh, Okay. Um, okay. But anyway. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, so totally. apparently uh, Ian worked for her some in New York City for... Uh, apparently about a year and then came back up uh, upstate so um, so she had enough of a reputation as a cook that this wealthy woman had hired her to come and be her personal cook in, in New York mm-hmm. City and uh, and uh, so that's you know okay. kind and, of the basic and when
1: we talked she, okay so when we talked earlier on the phone about a couple right. of weeks ago we talked about her involvement, Ann's involvement with freeing and liberating her husband. And I don't right. think the movie touched on Ann's role at all, which was an injustice, I think, to yeah. um, the truth and, and the role of the black family, which, you know, we don't celebrate too right. much in mainstream media. But tell the audience about um,
0: right. Ann
1: and what was right. her role as far as liberating her husband.
0: Okay. Well, uh when when North's book came out in 1853, the Twelve Years a Slave book, at the back of the book mm-hmm. they reproduced uh, uh, documents that were submitted to the governor of New York State that allowed uh, a white man, a white lawyer that knew Solomon very well, it permitted him to go to Louisiana and find Solomon and bring him home on behalf of the state. And one of the one of the major pieces of paperwork. Involved in that was what was called a memorial from Anne and uh, saying that you know my husband uh, disappeared and he was a free person and you know here's the information about us and he disappeared and we got one uh, letter uh, that first year he was gone that said he was in New Orleans, and then we never heard anything else until recently and she was seeking, you know, the governor's permission to appoint someone to go find Solomon. So she, and she probably worked, Henry B. Northup is the man that went down in the movie. They had a different person go down to to bring Solomon back, but it was a man named Henry B. Northup There was an acquaintance of both Ian and Solomon, and he was an attorney, so he probably worked closely with her putting together this legal paperwork, uh, and also got affidavits from other people that had known Solomon and said he was, you know, he was a free person and we know him very well and he had a good reputation and so forth and just, just to bolster the case to make sure that the governor um, no. took oh. it seriously. And uh, so then Henry B. Northup did go down. He made the long trip uh, from New York State to Louisiana, and he didn't know exactly where Solomon was, but he managed to ask around and find out without too much trouble and presented all his paperwork, and the people involved in the court system there realized that his paperwork was so definitive that there was no reason to drag it out. They said, just just um, release Solomon and let him go home, because it's obvious that he was kidnapped many years ago. Um, and, uh, and that's what we're going other...
1: I'm sorry. <clears throat> Is there any other um, scenes in the film where, or any other facts that you uncovered that you think was missed in the film or, or needed some sort of correction or should have been um, expanded on?
0: Well, they, they made, a, you know, anytime they make a movie, they make a lot of little changes that some of them aren't that consequential. But, but there are some interesting oddities, you know, because uh, in the film, they had his first master, William Prince Ford, uh, present him with a violin. And actually, in Solomon's book, he says it was actually uh, Mistress Epps who they portrayed in a very negative light um, in the film. But she was actually the one that told her husband to go find a violin for Solomon. Uh, because in the movie, she was—you know—they made her out to be pretty bad. And Northrop himself, in his book, says she. She was a really nice lady, except she was just consumed by jealousy when it came to Patsy, and that's why she treated Patsy so bad, but she was nice to, you know, the other ones. So they made some changes, and, you know, it made more sense for the the woman that they portrayed as being, you know, pretty terrible, you know, not to actually have bought him the violin. Instead, they had uh, Master Ford uh, do that. Um, so, the, you know, little things like that, but not really anything that of too much consequence. Uh one of the things that people liked about North's book when it came out was he was so even handed and objective. And, you know, even even the people that were, you know, pretty mean to him, he sometimes would find some way to say something nice about him. It's kinda of surprising because uh as I say, Mr. Sepps he, he actually said she was a very nice lady, except she had this thing about jealousy, she was consumed by it and she she just disliked Patsy so much that she mistreated her constantly. Uh, But people liked that at the time because they felt, well, he's telling the truth because he's not just trying to, uh, you know, um, exaggerate things. He's telling the truth and he's telling, you know, both the good and the bad about these people. So I think it made it much more believable at the time.
1: Uh, Yes, uh, and... There were a bunch of slave narratives being written at that time, and a lot of people thought they were exaggerating for the cause. Could you go a little bit into that, why, you know, his was authentic?
0: Right. Well, of course, the one, not necessarily slave narrative, but the one that people know the most about is Uncle Tom's Cabin, that had come out a year before uh, Solomon Ortha's book. And many people criticized that because they said, obviously, it's, a, it's fiction, it's a novel, it doesn't pretend to be true, and you know we don't necessarily believe it because it was just meant to be an entertainment and it promote the abolitionist cause. And, uh, and then just a few months before Solomon Ortho's book came out, here at Beecher Stowe that wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, did another book that was mm-hmm. called The Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Where she kind of responded to that criticism, and she mm-hmm. took various anecdotes and things from newspapers that actually happened that were similar to what she had in her in her novel, and put it in the form of a book. And she included in that uh, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of a write-up about Salman Northup because uh, uh, his story had come out in the newspapers, and she managed to get a little bit in the book about him. Uh, so she responded to. Yeah, she responded to this criticism, and then of course, not about four or five months after that book came out, Solomon North's book came out, and people just really liked that because it was it just it just seems so objective. And even people that read it now, I think you realize that he tells all these little details that show he didn't really have that much of an agenda other than to say, here's what happened to me, and you you see what you think, and you you see, read about what happened to me. And if you still think slavery is a good idea, then, you know, that's up to you. But, you know, I think he was so sure that people were going to see what it was like that he didn't have to lead them, you know, by the nose. They would, they would figure it out on their own just by reading what happened to him.
1: Now, we talked about this phenomenon that's, you know, this part of this peculiar institution called slavery. Mm-hmm. How is it, you know... Could you give us an insight on how it must have been for Solomon as a free black man, and not just him, but all free black men, living in a state where slavery still existed? So here he is, a free man, walking amongst and living amongst enslaved blacks. Could you explain?
0: Yeah. Well, he uh, he even mentions in his book that because he... Lived in Saratoga Springs, where there were a lot of uh, like black waiters and so forth at the hotels, and uh, people would also come to the hotels uh, from the south, and they would bring their slaves with them, and he would have a chance to talk to them, and occasionally say, "Well, you know, wouldn't you rather be free?" And some of them were they were, were kind of interested in in running away, but they were too scared, and other ones felt that, "Well, I." Things are okay with me now. So he had an idea about, something of an idea about slavery. But at the same time, even the free people in New York State, it was not uh, paradise because you had a lot of rights, but there were also a lot of rights that you didn't have. And there were things that, according to the law, there was nothing that would keep a black person from serving under jury. But the people that drew up the jury list never bothered to include black people because they felt it'd be too controversial, and they just they just didn't do it and uh, there were a lot of little things like that and uh, uh,
1: uh-huh.
0: so there was there was inequality, there were certain professions that you were expected to follow, and you know it was difficult maybe to break out of that uh, stereotype. You know, I mean, if you mm-hmm. wanted to be a barber or a laborer, you know, nobody had problems with that. But if you were going to be, you know, try to become a doctor or something like that or a lawyer. Uh, there was a law school in Boston Spa, which is the town I lived in. It's next to Saratoga Springs. Uh, and there was a man that later became famous uh, by the name of John Mercer Langston, who was, mm-hmm. uh, I think, about the second black congressman in the United States. Uh, and he wanted to attend this law school. And they... Wouldn't let him enroll as a student. They said that uh, if you come, you can you can attend classes and kind of sit in the back and don't ask any questions and stuff. And as time goes on, if nobody makes any objections, then you know eventually we'll let you become a, a full student. But you know you have to kind of ease your way into it. And he was insulted by that, and he, he said he didn't want any part of that, and uh, ended up you know getting his legal training elsewhere. Uh, because of the discrimination, mm-hmm. this was in the 1850s. So
1: uh, and he's also Langston Hughes', um relative.
0: That's right. And he that's was right. also
1: he was also elected one of the first people fully elected. He won by
0: mm-hmm. votes. Right. So um, yeah,
1: I'm familiar with him. And he
0: was uh, um, he was the ambassador he, to Haiti too. Also, so he had he had quite a uh, political career.
1: <clears throat> and his family was a part was uh, two of his relatives were part of John Brown's raid.
0: Oh, really? That I didn't, I didn't run across. Yes, That's interesting. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the liberty laws. Um, okay. You know, we talked about it on the phone earlier. The
0: right.
1: liberty laws and how that affected Ann's ability to help liberate um, Solomon. Right. Now, which one came first, the liberty mm-hmm. law or the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850?
0: Uh, Yeah, well, in in New York State at least, uh, in 1840, um, the legislature passed a law that would allow the governor, if he had uh, convincing information that a citizen of New York State had been kidnapped and sold as a slave, that he could appoint someone to work uh, as an agent of the state with the full power of the state to go tra- travel around and try to find that person and bring him back, which is what happened in some Northup's case, and that was like just uh, not quite a year. It was passed not quite a year before Northrop was kidnapped, which was you know very ha- very happy coincidence for him. And uh, at the same the same year, they also passed uh, a, a law that provided the right to a jury trial for uh, citizens that were accused of being a fugitive slave. So that was. This is 1840. So this is, you know, some of the early uh, legislation in New York State that was trying to uh, uh, make it easier for people to, first of all, to avoid being kidnapped, and second of all, uh, if they have been kidnapped, to be able to be rescued. Because of course, what would happen is somebody would say, pick out a particular black person and say, that man is a future slave, and I know who he belongs to, and I'm going to take him back to Virginia or wherever. And the person didn't have a lot of say about it, even if they knew it was a, was a lie. So the New York, New York State said they should be able to have a jury trial and, and, have, and have, the, have the right of habeas corpus in order to prove, you know, bring witnesses and prove that they're not the person that that person, the you know, slave catcher says they are. Um, okay. So there was uh, there was a lot of danger. Of kidnapping and, and there were a number like some in Northrop's, that actually took place um, to, even despite these, these protections.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, um, we're talking about lawsuits. We, we had a guest on a couple of months ago and she talked about um, 300. She wrote a book about 300 uh-huh. uh, enslaved African Americans who had sued successfully for right. their freedom. Now, Solomon, he's a a different case, and I wonder how many stories are out there that we don't know about, whereas after he was kidnapped, um, he was able to gain his freedom back, and then he also sued. Could you tell the audience more about this lawsuit?
0: Right. Uh, Well, uh, about a year after his book came out, a man that read it realized that from the descriptions in Twelve Years a Slave he felt he knew who the two men were who had lured Solomon away from Saratoga. Um, so they they arrested the two men and put him in jail and there was a criminal criminal case brought by them brought against them and they were indicted. Uh, but Solomon North also filed his own civil suit seeking damages for having for them having, you know, kidnapped him and and made him into a slave, uh, and he so that and that paperwork is still on file at the uh, Saratoga County uh, uh, Records Office, um, and I have a, a copy of it, you know, signed by Solomon Northup, that he's instituting this civil case to get damages from the two men that kidnapped him. Um, hmm. Unfortunately, the criminal case ends up being dropped after a couple of years without even any reason being given and it's not exactly clear why but we think part of it was a big part of it was that there was a new district attorney and he hadn't instituted the case in the beginning and he was also a Democrat and the Democrats weren't that they weren't overly concerned about slavery um, and he just felt maybe that it wasn't you know the kind of case he wanted to push Um, but we don't know they didn't really say give any reason why the case was dropped it just was a Brief announcement in the newspaper uh, in 1857 that said the case against the kidnappers is, is dropped, um, and then Solomon North's civil suit against them, as far as we know, wasn't successful. We never saw any resolution that uh, that uh, it was you know uh, that it proceeded in court or anything. Um, so he probably never got um, any. Uh, any compensation from the kidnappers for for his uh, years as a slave, but he did. But he did go to court, and it wasn't the first time he went to court because there had been a case before he was kidnapped where he did a job for somebody and they didn't pay him, and he took him to court, and there was a jury trial, and the jury sided with Solomon Northup and said the other man had to pay up. Um, so he wasn't wow. he wasn't uh, averse to, to pleading his case in court. Uh, um, and, you know, I, I think that's one thing that they do show in the movie when he first realizes he's he's locked up in the slave pen and he kind of says, you know, you have no right to hold me here. I'm a free man, and what's the reason you're holding You know, I mean, I think that's what he would have said because he knew that he had rights in court, and if he had had any way to, even in Washington, D.C., to have gotten his case heard, he would have pushed it. And, of course, on the way... Home before they came back to New York State, they did try to, uh, or they did bring charges against the slave trader who had purchased him illegally, uh, and tried to hold him to account, uh, but uh, it didn't it didn't work out. And a big reason was that in Washington D.C., uh, a black person could not testify against a white person, so Solomon Orthop wasn't able to testify, and without him, there wasn't really that you know, much evidence, so uh, the case didn't go anywhere. But
1: in New York, he could testify.
0: In New York State, he could testify, and he did He did testify. There was an examination when they first arrested the two men who lured him away. Uh, they had an examination. He testified at length in Saratoga County. Uh, and then the other court proceedings mostly were just the lawyers arguing about different points of the law, and there was not really any, any actual testimony after that but if it had proceeded i'm sure he would have testified uh in the actual uh uh in any further court sessions as well but he did testify in an initial hearing or what they called an examination at the time uh and then as as a result of that the two men uh were indicted so it was, it was taken seriously
1: mm-hmm. <clears throat> now you were saying he was astute in court um well first with the law he had no problems with suing people right uh, tell us a little bit about you know his different careers um as a free man and right. uh as the movie depicted, he was also um a lumber person right. I guess you would call
0: him yep. well he did uh, he he basically kind of grew up on a farm and he did some farming and anybody that's been involved with anybody that does has a farm, you know, every farmer has to know how to do about 10,000 different things because there's just so much to do Mm -hmm. on a farm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But he also had worked uh, doing lumbering, uh, and he had worked a lot uh, rafting on the Champlain Canal, and he would uh, get contracts like this one I was talking about that the man didn't pay him, uh, and he took him to court. He would get contracts to transport things on the uh, Champlain canal uh, and interestingly he would hire his own crew to help him and uh, the case at least that I know of uh, some of the men that worked that he had hired testified in this little court case and they were they were white men so he had you know white men working for him which I don't think was typical at the time so it must be a sign of how well respected it was that there was any white people that would be willing to work you know, under a black man. So he did rafting, and, of course, that came in handy because he, in, in Louisiana he figured out uh, a way to transport uh, some uh, 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 lumber uh, on a river instead of overland, and it saved a lot of time and a lot of uh, money for Master Ford. Um, and, of course, he did fiddling. Um, he probably wasn't quite as prominent a fiddler as they showed in the film because he writes in his book that he, he mostly kind of would perform at country dances and things like that. Um, and in the film, they make it look like he's giving a big concert or something. But uh, he he probably was, was a very capable fiddler, but I don't think he was uh, – that wasn't his main profession. His, that was just kind of uh, his uh, secondary career. Um, because he did a lot of uh, – in Saratoga Springs, he said he would drive uh, – a wagon to take people to the hotels, and he worked on uh, a local railroad and when they were in the process of building a new railroad to come into Saratoga Springs. he worked on that uh he also was he an
1: entrepreneur re-
0: oh, I think he was especially after he came back, that really came out because um, when he first returned to New york state uh There were newspaper reports of him being present at some anti-slavery rallies, and they would say, uh, Henry B. Northup got up and told about how he went to rescue Solomon, Uh, and then Solomon would come up on stage and get like a round of applause or something. But after his book came out, Solomon would go traveling on his own and give his own lectures on his own. So um, it kind of turned around, because when he first came back, it was like, oh, here's Here's the white lawyer that helped him out. And then once his book came out, he turned that around, and it was all about him. And people would say, oh, the, the uh, notable Salman Northrup will lecture tonight at the City Hall and things like that. Uh, so he had a career as, uh, as a speaker. Uh, there were two versions of uh, plays about his life that were done. Um, and it seems probably neither one was overly successful, but at least he, he tried um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think he was very entrepreneurial, and I think he came up with these ideas. Or he would, he would find somebody that maybe was involved in the theater and talk to him, and they'd say, uh, "Oh, yeah, we'll we'll make a we'll make a play about your life, and we'll give it a shot." You know. Um, so I think he, I uh, my impression is he was very entrepreneurial. That's great.
1: All right, so we're going to close this this interview um, at this point, but before we go, could you give us some parting words, uh, any books that you recommend besides yours and how we can purchase your book, and also could you explain um, where you're going to be and if you have the contact information, how someone can hear your lecture?
0: Oh, okay. Um, Well, of course... uh, if people saw 12 Years a Slave, the film, uh, it would really be good to get a copy of 12 Years a Slave, the book, and read what Salman North actually said, because, uh, as I say, they made a few changes here and there in the movie. And, of course, the movie is only two hours long, and he was a slave for 12 years, so they couldn't put everything from the book into the movie. Um, so that would be my first recommendation would be uh, to find, uh, get a copy of 12 Years a Slave. Uh, and then as far as my event, that's on uh, this coming Saturday, May 10th, uh, the Schenectady Historical Society uh, in uh, Schenectady, New York. It's going to be at 2 p.m. And uh, um, it'll be a, a lecture uh, be a presentation with slides and so forth. Uh, and I could think there's a small admission charge of $5, um, unless you're a member of the, of the society. Um, and then, I don't know, they probably will put something in their newsletter about it later on. They're, uh, uh, they have a, a website that is uh, SchenectadyHistory.net. Um, and uh, so people could probably find out more about it there after it takes place. And I have a website, okay. too, uh Just SolomonNorthup.com, where I have some basic information on Solomon Northup, and I uh, some of the uh, pertinent information as far as what his life was about, and then links to some of the articles that I've written about him, and a list of uh, presentations that I have that I've done, and some of which are upcoming, relate to Solomon Northup. So. uh,
1: Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um,
0: well, thank you so much. Uh,
1: I know you have several other books out, and I know you have a new one you're about to release. Maybe we can have you come on and talk more about that book uh,
0: as well. Okay, um, it's, it's probably not going to be in the very near future, but uh, we'll see how it goes.
1: <laughs> All right. Okay. Again, have a great night, and good right. luck with your um, your presentation.
0: Great. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Okay.
1: Bye-bye.